Welcome to Habitual Excellence, presented by Value Capture. This podcast in our firm is all about helping you and your organization achieve habitual excellence via one unifying focus, one value-based structure, and one performance system. In other words, it's about helping you capture dramatically more value through achieving perfect care and perfect safety for patients and staff. To learn more about Value Capture and our services, visit www.valuecapturellc.com. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to today's panel discussion that's going to answer the question, why does the U.S. need a National Patient Safety Board? I'm Mark Graben from Value Capture. I'll be the moderator today. We're joined by two panelists, Dr. Karen Wilk-Feinstein and Ken Siegel. Value Capture is a trusted advisory firm that supports chief executives who seek to transform the performance of their healthcare organization along the lines of safety, quality, and profitability, um, using an approach drawn from the world's most successful organization and his organizations and has been honed in healthcare by Value Capture for more than a decade. So we invite you to visit our website at valuecapturellc.com if you'd like to learn more. And then we also invite you to go visit the website for the proposed National Patient Safety Board at npsb.org. And there will be a link to that, of course, in the recording page with additional resources where you can um, read and deepen your understanding about these issues and what's being proposed. Dr. Karen Wilk-Feinstein, first off, she's the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Jewish Healthcare Foundation. And it's three operating arms, the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative, or PRHI, Health Careers Futures, and the Women's Health Activist Movement Global, or WAM Global. So combined, these organizations perform a a mix of grant writing, research, teaching, coaching, and project management to serve as a regional catalyst for healthcare reform. So under Dr. Feinstein's leadership, JHF and PRHI have become a leading voice in patient safety, healthcare quality, and related workforce issues. And then we're also joined by Ken Siegel. He's a co-founder of Value Capture and serves as Chief Executive Officer. Prior to helping form Value Capture, um, Ken served as a founding director of PRHI, where uh, PRHI PRHI achieved best-in-nation regional results in the elimination of several types of risks for patients. Before that, Ken served for five years as a senior program officer of the Jewish Healthcare Foundation of Pittsburgh, where he guided many community health improvement initiatives, And so you might have figured out Ken and Karen have known each other and worked together um, for a very long time. So um, with that relationship and with their knowledge and experience, I know we're going to have a very uh, lively and informative um, discussion here today. So again, thank you, everybody, for joining. And um, I think, Karen, um, first, um, you know, to you, give you an opportunity, um, if you would please summarize the concept of the National Patient Safety Board. Well, the... NPSB um, was definitely inspired by what we learned from aviation and how safe aviation has become. And that is an independent national research and development organization. Right now we have the responsibility for patient safety and playing many different roles are many different federal agencies. If you add them up, you're in the tens or twenties of different agencies who have a piece of it. But what we learned from aviation is the advantage of having organizations like their NTSB and their commercial aviation um, safety team. And together they do a great deal of R&D and the idea is to prevent an error before it ever occurs. I underline that five times. Mm -hmm. And we have technology now. Um, we didn't have when we started the initiative, or at least it wasn't in any way applied to healthcare. We now have big data, we now have data analytics, AI, ML, and the capability to tech enable safety and, and harm prevention. And the last is we now have a front line that is really stressed. So you know, as the human factors people say, what we really want is to build them a better airplane so that we're not relying on the flight attendant to make sure that I get from Pittsburgh to San Diego safely. 
And we'll have an opportunity to dive deeper into you know the the, the concepts and some of the details here. Um, but Ken, let's let's hear from you. Um, you know, Karen has articulated some of the why. I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know why you support this proposal, how you expect it to help. Yeah. So, um, Mark, I appreciate that, and and um, again, I want to uh, acknowledge uh, the leadership of so many people who I know are joining us today in this movement. And I think why I support this concept and came to it and was um, discussions with Karen, discussions with many others that I know Karen has had, and you know, a couple things. One is. We all know, and we've had very recent confirmation, that if you just look at the data, the actual facts about how much harm continues to happen in healthcare, uh, reconfirmed recently, and I think we'll probably talk more about that, um, you know, essentially unchanged levels of harm um, in most areas on an inpatient basis at a shockingly high level, uh, with so much more potential um, to prevent harm and advance the science of doing that, and especially advance the deployment. Um, so the outcome is just, you know, we aren't where we need to be. And that should cause us all to think about, you know, every if every system is producing exactly what it's designed to produce, what we have right now is producing, you know, not nearly enough forward movement. So that's one. And second, um, you know, I'm sort of haunted by the inspiration for many of us and someone we learned a lot from uh, who, you know, was a great leader of the safety movement um, across industries. Paul O'Neill, uh, first co-chair with with Karen of the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative, and you know he he would say things like, um, uh, you know, organizations and systems cannot be situationally excellent. Mm -hmm. You know that you're either excellent or you're not. And from a systems perspective, looking across many organizations, that's also true, right? So we have an islands of excellence situation. Some, you know, particular harms we've driven way down um, and some institutions that are tenfold, the top 10% of hospitals, as John Toussaint and I wrote in an HBR article, are 10 times safer than the bottom 10%, you know, that kind of variation. And so we don't have uniform excellence. And then Paul had another thing which haunts me. And he says a lot of well-intentioned activity that does not connect in a systemic, powerful way to produce, you know, the results that we need is not, uh, can actually be, it's not dangerous. Well, in and of itself, it's well-intentioned. It can be good in an isolated way. But if we rest because we're all doing good work, we will never get where we need to be. And so I really appreciated Karen's leadership and calling the question and the others that have gotten involved to say um, we're missing a key element of systemness. And we'll probably talk a little bit later about why we think this particular piece can be an anchor of a stronger system. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ken. Um, Karen, let me let me turn it back to you and Asking you know, what were some of the models that were used as a basis for the NPSB, and can you share, you know, some kind of the parallels of to that of what the the role and and some of the detail about the NPSB and how it would work? Well, I take as a model certainly, and I mention CAST, but within healthcare we have a successful model, an extraordinary model. And that's the Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation. So beginning, hard to believe, in 1985, some of my senior staff were not alive then. Beginning in 1985, uh, the specialty decided it had to be safer. And everybody signed on. It was an amazing feat, bringing everyone together under a tent. They formed their own safety foundation. And I'm very excited about the results. They're pretty extraordinary. But they not only made anesthesia safer, they have never been afraid of technology. By the way, some of their leading staff were engineers and scientists, not necessarily clinicians, but they brought us simulators and the whole simulation industry, which in itself is an amazing safety improvement. They haven't given up. They haven't just said, look, we are uh, 20 times safer but they keep looking for ways, including their new approach to maintenance of certification. They keep looking for ways in which their specialty gets safer and safer, and they, they provide models for others to use. So 
I look at APSF and I say, I'd love to have that on a national scale, serving all of our specialties and serving all of us as patients. So, Ken, go ahead, please. No, and it, you know, and you asked about the National uh, Transportation Safety Board as a model, and um, you know, maybe I could just say a few words. Uh, again, there are people on the on the call that are more expert than I about why I found it to be a powerful um, uh, pattern of a public agency uh, doing a lot of good in transportation. So, first is just the record, right? When we look at uh, you know, another very da inherently dangerous sector of American life, transportation, and different sec. And if you look across different sectors, from auto travel to uh, bridges uh, to um, uh, uh, to air transport, and you look at the record between the '70s and now, you see the kinds of steep declines, especially at uh, times of you know deep focus on systemness, driven by the creation and continued refinement and execution of an expertise-driven, independent uh, systems thinking, um, you know, the, the kind of systems expertise and thinking um, and deep knowledge of technology group out of the NTSB that, um, you know, we learned along the way from say Chairman Sulmalt, uh, former chair of the NTSB, really powerful testimony about how their brief being the truth and their ability to sort of go get it and find it out and put it out there and, and not have it dragged into lawsuits and things like that, but just sort of be the truth to set standards in the industry and say the truth. Um, moved an industry from, you know, very to much more serious and systematic looking and learning from harm than I think we've done collectively and systemically. Two, then learning from near misses, right? And, and that becoming a standard and thinking much more deeply about that and what sort of local to national connections had to be in place for that to be a true system and not a series of islands and maybe it happens and maybe it doesn't. To, um, you know, this, this proactive lens, and this is the creation of CAST as sort of a spin out where, uh, or linked arm where, uh, you know, they are, for example, not just learning from black boxes and airplanes uh, that, um, uh, you, know, you know, are going to say in, a, in an actual accident or a near miss, but not just learning in those instances, but proactively scanning them continuously in a continuous learning system and having, you know, the key players in the industry part of that learning system so they can, as, as Karen said, prevent the problem in the first place. So, you know, and I want to say, and I see some of the comments, you know, one of the things that attracts me and I, is the uh, absolute independence and authority to call it like it is and force that learning and take that view of we want to push it upstream as far as possible. And while sort of commissioning the learning system that everybody has to be part of, um, not the governance side, but the learning side. Um, is the effort to sort of get smart based on, you know, a successful systems-based, expertise-based model um, that can not just carry more credibility in the private side and sort of, um, if you will, the moral authority to cause leaders to take more systemic action on that side. But also, you know, we have huge gaps in how well the public understand these issues and are being educated. And I think that's another huge uh, opportunity. Um, we can talk a little later about, you know, some of this week's articles in the New York Times, which were sort of heartbreaking, yeah. uh, in which more public education, you know, could certainly help us um, prevent more harm in the future. Karen is, you know, kind of one follow-up question building on what Ken talked about of, you know, learning from near misses and sharing information. You mentioned earlier the role of technology. Could you share a little bit more about that and what, you know, through technology in different ways, how can the NPSB um, help others learn from each other? Well, learning from each other is one thing, preventing harm is another. So I would say um, among all of the priorities we have, it's to prevent harm before it occurs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you, you do that, obviously, um, when you can put together 
um, the kinds of technologies that are out there, monitor sensors. You look at the extraordinary control rooms that quite a few hospitals have. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, and they're meant right now to manage bed flow, which is important. You can't have people out in tents sitting in ERs and hallways. You want to manage the bed flow, which we could argue is sort of a safety issue in itself. But the amazing thing is the technology that allows a NASA-like war room, you know, operations room in a hospital manned by nurses, where they are constantly knowing what is happening around the hospital and personnel, equipment, supplies can be sent to the most strategic place. Mm -hmm. So I think of the technologies that are out there, just as an example, there are many ways those control rooms can also be set up as safety prevention rooms with the right data and knowing what are the preconditions for harm. What, what, what are some of the contextual situations that say warning, you know, serious warning? then we would have a way of starting to systematically prevent harm before it occurs, know where your hotspots are. So that's just one example. We have so many examples out there of amazing uses of technology. And I'll just say one of the most intriguing to me is something called Madeira out of the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins, the mechanical device interoperable something. Anyway, Madeira is a pod. Madeira can go onto a battlefield and tend to a wounded warrior. It can diagnose what the warrior needs and it can actually intervene mm. and keep the warrior alive for up to three days until they can be safely evacuated to a military hospital. So I think of our rapid response teams and when they're functioning well and when they're available now during staffing shortages and in the middle of the night, I often say to the people at APL, could you get Madeira in an elevator? But I am thinking of the many ways the technology could help relieve some of the burden, but also, as I said, and I can't say it enough, the overall objective is not to have harm occur, to, to right. intervene before right. it occurs. Right. And when that's what you're focused on, you have to look at autonomous technologies. Mm -hmm. Um, before, I kind of want to bring it back to you, but I think there was maybe just as a quick follow-up um, question, Karen. Um, Lisa asked, how do we prevent these monitors from being, quote-unquote, managed remotely to help ensure that the people monitoring them are present in the facility? Um, there is going to be, as we all know, there are going to be glitches in anything, human error, and, and sometimes just, um, it wouldn't, I wouldn't call this actually tech error, but it's possible that the monitoring isn't as good as it should be. And I, and I understand that. And we know that airbags sometimes don't function as they should, or the people of a certain height and weight may not benefit from an airbag, but yet we know that airbags have saved thousands of lives and made a dramatic difference in traffic fatality. You know, I <laughs> I can't ever promise you that any intervention is foolproof, that nothing could ever go wrong. But I do want to say the balance of lives saved and the, I, there's enormous respect. I, I, I encourage everyone, if you get to visit one of the control rooms, these are the most diligent um, workers who are constantly scanning the environment and it's much better than not having it. Okay. Mark, can I... Could I comment on that and, and uh, make another related point about technology? Um, I think the question illustrates exactly the kind of reason why we want an authoritative, systematic, connecting sort of top to bottom across the nation learning system going as the possibilities for technological and other change come into view so that we are continuously learning how to do them safely. And, you know, if they're starting in an unsafe way, what are the what are the standards that have them, you know, performing at the highest level to actually prevent the harm from happening? And so I don't, I, you know, and obviously I don't think anyone on the call or otherwise is thinking, you know, this, you know, any enabling legislation is going to rule this in or that out, or this has to be done that way. We're trying to create um, the capacity for the 
best continuous expertise and learning to occur and be public and, you know, about what the dangers are and what the risks are and what the ways to um, prevent it, prevent the harm from happening and ways to not fall into a well-meaning trap of, you know, not solving the harm or causing another problem. It's a continuous system of learning that systems perspective and, you know, and, and, and yet at the same time, I totally understand where people are coming from because, you know, those of us, every one of us are, you know, consumers of healthcare and family members and then involved with uh, stories. And when we're in these situations, we feel sometimes the risk at the point of the spear, you know, that is not yet in the conversation in a way. So one of the things I am excited about in the um, package that's been proposed is also uh, you know, a national way for, for families and advocates and others to report events you know, with the details of how they were experienced, et cetera. So, but, it's, but it's systems learning, right? And mm-hmm. all access, and in my view, you know, as close to real time and transparent as possible would be ideal. But I wanna make another point. I wanna shift a little bit. So Karen is talking about uh, technology that is available today and also the future. And I want to talk about another technology that is available today and why uh, in the kind of levels I think an NPSB can work at. And that is we today have the ability to every major EMR has functionality, plug-in functionality to sort of auto-detect impending harm on inpatient and many outpatient um, sort of lines of care. And we know from David Klassen and his colleagues involved in you know, specific PSOs and research communities that the amount that gets identified is at least 10 times and sometimes up to 100 times as large as those that are being called out voluntarily on the front line, no matter how well-meaning or effective are, you know, we want people to put their hands in the air when they have risk. We also know that uh, these harms and potential harms do not fall evenly in the list of those harms, you know, that we think of all the time. You know, uh, in, they are in addition to the falls and things. They are about kidney damage. They are about, you know, the damage done by poor glycemic control and things like that. And um, the situation that we have is very few institutions are turning on these detections today, hmm. these detection levels. Well, why is that? Well, think about it. It's overwhelming. We already have sort of a you know precarious state of operations in many of our healthcare institutions and sort of leaders to frontline uh, you know feelings, and we have what has historically been a very conservative you know uh, set of institutions in terms of being willing to be transparent about, you know even internally uh, when they're not sure what to do about when you turn on 10 times the flow of actual harm, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But how can we not do that? How can we not want to know the truth about what's actually going on mm-hmm. so that we can prevent it? And we have to get ourselves through that. If we have a clear national force that is saying this is the, the future is here and it's a combined technology and leadership question, And to sort of draw attention to, you know, why it's so important that those things move together and become the standard in a relentless way, we have the power right now to do so much good, but in our highly distributed way, it's going to be harder. And again, uh, you know, shout out to our colleagues at CMS who have embedded some of the first electronic detections and their measurement, et cetera. We have the CDC that long-term has been, you know, driving our error detection on infections, you know, toward this direction, but we can take this big leap, but we need, we need more of a center of gravity, um, you know, uh, to, to help us get there. So I'll just use that as an illustration of what I think is possible. Again, it won't definitely happen. And it's going to take great leadership and execution and the right design, but that's possible. So before we come back and talk more about the MPSB and, and details there, Ken, you mentioned earlier, I want to step back and talk about the need for improvement in healthcare. As you mentioned, we're not getting the results we need. You mentioned the recent New England Journal of Medicine study that estimated one in four hospitalized patients has an adverse event. Many of these are preventable errors. And I'll emphasize there that these were 
estimates based on a limited chart review of a small percentage of uh, patients nationally. How do we move from estimates to real data? And is there a role, we'll bring it back to the MPSB, what would be the role of the MPSB um, to get actual data to really know the scale of the problem here? The, the challenge to getting <laughs> the data we need is making a Sophie's choice is not an easy choice. If the data aren't protected for the purposes of research and understanding how to prevent harm, we will get national companies, we know they exist, they, I call it scrubbing the data. Mm -hmm. They code, recode, upcode. And by the time you're done, anyone who enters from a nursing home may be coded as having um, a pressure sore that was there before admission. Now, that is very dangerous because pressure sores themselves are an indication of difficult work conditions and a staffing shortage. Mm -hmm. Once you see a, a flurry of pressure sores, which we did during the pandemic, you, you know you have staffing issues. Um, and so you want an honest count. So everybody loves public reporting. No one likes transparency better than I do, but that's not how aviation became safer. I think that for a while at least, that this isn't an oversight organization. It's research and development to find solutions and ways of preventing harm. Focus on that, it can't be everything. They're gonna be federal agencies that regulate, that provide oversight, that are transparent, that do public reporting. We all know the data that are reported now are not, <laughs> Ken mentioned it and we know it. We're not getting all the errors. We're not getting near misses. And then we're not even getting, aside from the errors that people don't know about, they're the errors that get coded away. I mean, they're an error, but, but they're coded away. I think you're going to have to protect data for a while, de-identify it, protect it. If you want to really have enough data, accurate data, near-miss data, so that we can do what needs to be done. So I wouldn't, we never intended for the National Patient Safety Board to be all things for all people, but it is what it is, a coalition of almost 80 organizations representing the full range of stakeholders came together and signed off on it. And I think you have to look at it in its own context. It just is what it is. It's not going to solve all of the issues around safety. Mm -hmm. Mark, could I comment as well? Yeah. Um, and it may come from a slightly different angle. Um, and it, it, you know, the illustration I gave last time, I think, is an example of how, with again that intellectual leadership of you know what's possible, and in you know, and highlighting that, and um, an NPSB well done can start to drive things that direction by influencing what the regulators do, by what the state authorities do, by what, you know, in, in greater concert. Um, so, so again, I think that intellectual credibility, expertise based, and again, what you're talking about, about, you know, going toward real time and identification, it's possible today. We just have to create the foundation to move that direction. And that's gonna take a lot of different types of input, including mm -hmm. an intellectual center that you know is echoing what has been done in other spots and has a you know a prime place as a public agency mm -hmm. um, to do that. Um, if I might, there's another question here about how you know such an entity can um, you know support um, a culture of safety on the front lines and you know and help guard against. Or you know, provide greater safeguards against institutions that may be you know more finance first um, than this. And you know, for me, there there are just a couple things that occurred to me. And again, um, as people dig in more and get a chance to be exposed to some of the you know leaders of the NTSB, past and present and, and future and cast, um, you know, when the brief is is purely about safety and the truth. There's a piercingness to it that makes it harder to ignore and reaches closer to the front line in terms of what leaders react to and then the systems they build in their institutions. 
And I want to say that, unfortunately, you know, we we get to work with a, with a lot of healthcare institutions and talk to many others. And a lot of our safety activity today does not get down to the level of the hospitalist, mm-hmm. you know, even the leader of the team, you know, with, with a deep credibility that sort of deeply informs what they do and how they do it. And um, so I'm looking for more credibility, more truth telling uh, from a more prominent position, you know, to help uh, drive that um, uh, uh, sort of support um, for a culture of safety. And, you know, again, when you when you when you look at the models uh, that 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 have been looked at for, for this, you know, that truth telling and that talking about culture as well as the technical of what happened, you know, is very present and it has, you know, and it has shaped the culture, the leadership cultures um, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Back to reporting real quick, I think as a follow-up question, um, Karen Laurie asked, how can you ensure that patients and the public are able to report patient safety incidents and, and medical harm and that the public has transparency so that they can be informed about their risk of harm to to place the safety of the public first? Well, I've worked 25 years on public reporting and transparency. I'm all in favor of it. But let me explain what this entity is about. It's about research, development, experimentation, and finding solutions. I want honest data. I, I think we are desperately in need of honest data. Ken and I talk to a lot of the same people. We know perfectly well that if you bring in a truth seeker who's really good at informatics, they will find many times, multiple times, the adverse events that are even brought to the awareness of a health system. Um, I believe that there's a place for it, but it's not gonna be the research enterprise needs real data. And I'm going to put that as my top priority here, hoping that transparency and public reporting definitely take place. But I think it has to, the first priority is preventing harm. The other interesting issue that people are bringing up, uh, and I wish I had an answer. We just had one of our fellowships start off a couple of days ago, and the students asked me the question they always ask me, how do we get? the governance of healthcare institutions, the systems, the insurers, how do we get them to place safety as a top priority? And I always say to my students, um, help me here. Um, We've sort of tried everything we can and we know, the one thing Ken knows well, because he works with them, when you have a leader, when you have a CEO who really cares about this, everything is different how we get everyone to really care about this, to make this a priority, I don't know, except that we have to underline how serious a problem this is as a result of the pandemic. It was very serious before the pandemic. Someone said to me, please don't use the word crisis for what's happening in safety right now because it's not strong enough. And the media, I see the media and their headlines, they're doing their best to cover this. We have a workforce beyond crisis, (laughs) it's a minefield. They're looking for words that are strong enough. We are going to lose a lot of our most talented workers. This isn't just nurses. The nurses are speaking up, thank you, about working conditions. We're losing physicians, we're losing techs, losing people in transport. The working conditions have to be set up so that every setting of healthcare is as safe as possible, or we're gonna keep losing more people. I would like to align interests. <laughs> I would like people to understand that safety is a business proposition, that, that guaranteeing, showing their support for safety, whether you're the AHA or the AMA or all the other initials out there, including all the specialty societies, you really need to speak up and come together. I, I think your workforce wants to know that as an industry, we're as committed to safety as nuclear power, aviation, or manufacturing. Well, thank you, Karen. Um, I want to ask you to talk about the House bill that was introduced last year, H.R. 9377, and the text of that 
um, is available and we'll make make sure that's shared. Um, tell us about that bill. And then there was a question in advance um, from William of, you know, thoughts on the current Congress and your expectations or hopes. I can't give them my thoughts on the current Congress. Uh, we may have a bipartisan group out there. Um, yeah, it's scary. Getting business done is scary. Senate, less scary. Senate, a little more stable, more predictable. Um, the House, as we all know, is having its own turbulence. Inner party as well as intra-party. Um, that is scary, obviously, to me and um, we, we are all well aware of that. Um, the, the legislation itself has been introduced in the House. Um, we are looking, we had bipartisan support, then the election, then the day after the election, and, and the bipartisan support kind of fell apart temporarily. Um, we do have a number of physicians and nurses in the House, in, in, in Senate as well, but in the House. And we're really hoping that that they will heed the call and do something about our current issue. But I do want to emphasize, many of you who are on this call are probably are probably part of an association or any of what I call the initials. Um, the most important thing, if, if this matters to you or you wouldn't be on this call, the associations are what the legislators look at. And let me be honest, one association above all. Their local health system, insurers, and AHA. So we know that if we had support, um, and the legislators knew they had support from the institutions, the associations that represent healthcare, I don't think we'd have trouble. It needs to be bipartisan. We all understand that. Um, even if it's a handful, um, it has to be from representing both parties. Right now, even just given the numbers, it has to be bipartisan. So what we, I think the thing we need most that would change everything is to have the associations that represent our health professionals and our settings of care say, we want this. We, we understand you devised this so that all of our loudest objections are met, but we want to be safer and we can't do this alone. And it has to be multidisciplinary. So my favorite legislator, please support this. <laughs> there was a, a follow-up question about um, costs. It says the NTSB budget, as the, the person says, is 110 million a year. I, I haven't verified that, but the question really is, what would be the expected cost of a NPSB? Is that known? Well, first of all, it's not known. A lot of things will happen if the legislation ever passes. And the question is, how fast do we want to go? How many? sources of harm do we want to take on? You can't take them all on. We know that. Um, are you going to prioritize how many? And uh, what kind of team are you going to bring together? And how permanent is the team? And one issue that I think somebody else mentioned that we've been very aware of from the time we started working on this, which was over three years ago, actually before the pandemic, there are organizations out there that can play a key role. We, we said from the beginning, and very interestingly, we had a meeting in Washington just before we shut down for the pandemic. We had a meeting in Washington and we invited, I'm joking, all the initials, but we invited all the federal agencies and all the major um, external organizations that provide any kind of oversight on safety, that play a role in safety. And we gave them several options. We said, we need to revive the issue of patient safety and we need to do it with consensus. We can't all be going in different directions. And we gave them several options. And the number one option they all agreed on was a national patient safety board. So we left Washington with a lot of support. I do think those agencies are there. They have a key role to play. So it won't be the NPSB operating alone. And I won't name them because we probably have people here and they know who they are, but we have a lot of partners in this who play a key role. So I don't think it's not like we're starting from scratch. We want to build on what exists. We want a role for the many excellent organizations that are already out there. But as Ken said, we want that systemness. We want to tie them together. And I will say that the NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, three former chairs, 
and other members, former members, have been very active with us. From the very beginning, we had enormous support. And the one thing they said to us is keep it independent. They said, we are successful because we're protected. Um, we don't, you know, we don't have political ups and downs. We don't get swerved in different directions. Every time there's a change in administration, our independence allows us to be so effective. So that, that's why we're going for an independent agency. Yeah. Thanks, Karen. Ken, it looks like, well, no, go, go ahead. I was going to ask you a question, but just go ahead and dive in. Uh, well, I'll just add a couple things, and, and, they, and they may be obvious. Uh, first, to to second Karen's, you know, it, it has to be independent and have that have that standing. Um, but you know, and Karen talked about bipartisan, and and I think it's in everybody's mind. But there, this should be a bipartisan issue, and there is absolutely no reason it should not be in any way, right? And and the way uh, Karen and the framers have structured this, you know, I, I a phrase that comes up for me is it's about sort of. Uh, marshalling the the sort of American innovation machine, right, to sort of acknowledge the truth, to protect American families, and to sort of continuously innovate based on the truth and what's possible to, you know, to, you know, eliminate harm and make healthcare the best it possibly can be and lead the world. So that's, you know, what's, what's, what's a partisan element of that? Mm -hmm. You know, let's go. And then, Ken, the question I was going to ask you, because it looked like you had something to say about back to this idea of preventing harm, not just reporting them, um, but looking at systemic factors, the question of do, does, does addressing systemic factors really have a broad impact on preventing harms? You're on the road. You were visiting a hospital um, this week. You're nearer to that sharp end of um, the needle or harm, if you will. I was, I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate, you know, and share some thoughts on, you know, preventing harm. Yeah, I mean, there there is actually, there is no question that, again, deep, powerful systems thinking uh, being promoted across the, uh, across the sector can have a powerful impact on preventing harm in the front line. And this is not new, right? It goes all the way back to we're with a very prominent uh, national system here um, and goes all the way back to 2008, an example where some of the first work to show that certain nosocomial infections were possible to eliminate. So the the regional healthcare initiative that Karen and I were, were you know, pr really privileged to help facilitate the action the providers in, in, in Western Pennsylvania to do it. Uh, but it spread to other places. And I'll give you a, a, a great example um, in, in looking to go from learning from harm to prevent all of their harm on central line associated bloodstream infections. You know, there was a realization that there are a number of supplies that the, that the bedside uh, team need all in one place, but they weren't sort of packaged or brought that way. And there was a risk in that itself. And uh, based on that insight, kits got developed that allowed that step of the process to be, you know, to prevent the harm from occurring in the first place. And you can imagine extending that out to technology and, you know, and sort of inventing the environment of care. And Karen cited another one, the interdependency of the challenges of the sector, you know, safety is dramatically affected by staffing, right, in, in the staffing crisis. And the institutions that have led with safety, truly, which requires you to sort of get behind your frontline staff in a big way, have had fewer staffing problems, right? We have, you know, we have inspiring examples of the systems thinking and people-focused leadership within that prevent harm. So um, I think of a recent guest on our podcast, Mark, from Washington Hospital, uh, and again, in Western Pennsylvania near Karen. Um, where they, um, you know, when COVID hit and Karen cited COVID, um, they were quite concerned about needing the potential to move toward requiring a lot of traveler staff to come in because they might lose theirs to the big systems that were hemorrhaging people. And they had, so they, and they'd been long innovators. They, you know, leapfrog a hospital, community hospital, and and uh, doing, you know, uh, work with the Toyota Supplier Support Center, et cetera, really deep innovators. 
and they innovated and they came up with a way that their staff could could you know enjoy enhanced uh, coverage and and income uh, while not getting anywhere near what it would cost for travelers and not needing travelers to come in. But the motivation of it was safety as well as safety for their patients as well as finance. And you know what? 125 years into their existence, they have not hired a single traveler in their in their hospital and the in the inpatient setting because of that safety first, people first leadership commitment. And you know, again, that's the kind of systemic thinking and promotion of examples mm-hmm. and analysis when brought to bear on challenges that can affect um, you know, what's happening in at the sharp end. Mm-hmm. Quick follow-up question, uh, Ken, before we get back to the MPSB topic directly. Um, Sarah asked, you know, there are times when um, local healthcare leaders or care teams become immune to or they become accepting of routine harm. What strategies can the frontline use to influence their leaders? So we'll, we'll talk more here local at the sharp end before we, we zoom out again. Do you have thoughts on, on that, Ken? I do. And- and, um, you know, we have, again, so many stories and deep insights and powerful emotional um, insights from people on the call. And that's one of them. And we've many, you know, many of us have seen it happen. Right. It's it's an overwhelm. It's a normalization of, of risk and the harm that occurs and, you know, can come from a sense of helplessness, a sense of overwhelm, those kinds of things. The thing that we think helps and I'll, I'll mention one thing is again, systems thinking and experiences and um, taking leaders of healthcare institutions to the front line to see the risk and the challenge that is being faced in a systemic way that helps look at the principles that can be brought to bear by leaders to better support that front line and reduce the risk, including the use of technology uh, in a far-sighted way um, and in a more transparent way with the front line in a no trade-offs way um, is a way of giving hope and a set of new skills and different lens for thinking about the problem that can break through some of that pattern of seeming to normalize, um, you know, the occurrence of harm. So that's just one example. Okay. Karen, I was going to ask you to go back and elaborate. You mentioned you, you've talked about coalition building. Can, can you share a little bit more about the coalition that you formed uh, to work toward bringing this into existence. Um, there was a question, I'll paraphrase, of, of people or organizations that you had wished were on board. You may I, that, you might not want to touch on that, but talk about the coalition, what, what you wanted it to be, what it is. Um, we wanted a broad coalition. And I would like everyone to understand when you create a federal agency, it's not like creating a nonprofit. You have to jump through a lot of hoops. And we talked to a lot of legislators. I spent three years talking to legislators. If we didn't have a broad coalition, it will not happen. I just want you to understand, if you want to spin wheels and and shoot for the rainbow, that is fine, but you will not pass any legislation. So one thing we're really proud of, we represent all stakeholders, insurers, health systems, We have so many different groups. We have professional societies. I would say in fairness, as I've said just a minute ago, one thing the legislators always ask about is their local health system. That is the first question. And then the associations that represent them. So, you know, everything isn't equal. So I would, of course, always open the door and welcome as long as there's a commitment to putting honest data forward in a protected way because we can't, it's the fuel. We can't do what we want to do um, without it. But let me say this, I, um, the one thing that connects my career from um, working in the war on poverty to my undergraduate, my PhD, my teaching at two different universities, running a foundation, there's one thing that connects it all. I'm a student of social movements. I love social movements and social revolutions. I wanna understand how societies heal themselves. There is no doubt that every social movement is turbulent, right? You start with a big tent and everybody writes in at what they think they're gonna find. And then you keep moving forward and moving forward till you get consensus of some sort and enough people within the tent to make a difference. So I do, I wanna encourage anyone 
you know, people may want something else. There may be things missing within NPSB. And I do want to encourage people, you know, put out a tent, get people in it. This is a lot of work. This is three and a half years of every day talking to legislators, talking to the different organizations involved and bringing the stakeholders together. But I have never seen a coalition like this focused on patient safety. It is very touching and inspirational how many groups come and we keep growing. So there is a taste for change. And I would also say one other thing is it's easy to talk. <laughs> it's easy to write in Q and A's and chats. We know how change is made, right? I studied community organization. Um, I lived through the war on poverty. I lived through the women's movement, the um, AIDS research movement. We, we lived through all these movements that were turbulent. The one thing I would say, things matter more than others. Letting your legislator know what you need and want, letting them know about the patient safety crisis, asking your employer, or if you're the employer, bargain for safety. Every health system will tell you that when the employers sit down, they just talk about price. So the things you can do, we need to send a loud message to everyone that patient safety is a front burner item. And us talking to each other and sending each other chats is, is invigorating but it isn't going to get the job done. Mark, could I, um, could I expand on, on, a, mm -hmm. on a point and yeah. um, in the social movement? And, you know, one of the things uh, I'm not sure we, we said was I had the chance to be on Capitol Hill as a legislative aide and a, and a leadership aide in my, when I was quite young, um, didn't know enough. Um, but got to see that process. And, you know, first of all, thanks to Karen and everybody else who's been involved for three and a half years to bring us to this point to sort of help rekindle based on the energy that Karen's talking about and the, that we need, um, you know, to, to bring it forward. And there's some exciting tectonic plates potentially moving in Washington around this legislation, et cetera. But it is a long haul, right? And especially something that's about sort of a system shift. And just because a bill is introduced, that it's still a long road to passage. And so all of this energy is needed, including, you know, what should it be like, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things I quickly learned in my Washington uh, years was, you know, you pass the bill and you think you've accomplished something and you have, but then the way the regulations are written and then interpreted and then carried out. So, you know, this, this, and, and no one should be discouraged. That's just the way it is, you know, in a democratic republic trying to learn and move forward. But the, but the more we can have the best systems thinking about the type of intervention needed and keep the energy going behind it, we can, you know, everyone on this call is needed to stay engaged and stay linked and keep sharing your best thinking and, and push it forward in in the ways that Karen has said uh, and 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 it's going to be a long journey and uh, you know and by the way this is not the only thing that should be happening right um, those these things can be complementary this should not be an all eggs in one basket type of approach for the movement so um, you know again thank you to Karen and her indefatigable um, you know, uh, putting together pieces uh, when she could be taking it, uh, you know, more easy from her position as a foundation and, and national leader on this stuff. But we need everybody and we need everybody for the long haul. Uh, Karen, there's a, a question for you. This is sort of in, in the details, but you talk about research focus. How would you picture the NPSB interacting with university researchers and academics? Everything. <laughs> Let me say everything. You know, where does the R&D for the Department of Defense, uh, where does DARPA go? Um, where does everyone go to get the best thinking, the best research and experimentation? So just give me my, my bigger vision. My bi bigger vision is we'd have a number of innovation hubs solely focused on patient uh, safety. That would be multi-institutional, multidisciplinary in in areas that want to form a hub. And there'd be a lot of research going on, not all centralized, it does not need to be centralized. And there is money out there for, for research, we'd like to see even more. But there's a lot of talk at some state levels, our, our state, 
And there's talk at the national level of setting up regional hubs for innovation. Let's make patient safety a wonderful focus for an innovation hub. And these bring together, you know, they, they cross boundaries in terms of universities um, and, and institutes of science, but we know it's doable. And I love the idea that we would build excitement around the country, that this would become at graduate schools of everything, engineering, business, informatics, you know, biomedical, of course, informatics, medical schools, nursing schools, that this would be an area of inquiry. And we would not only teach it and get our, our students excited, but that our researchers would have the funds to come together and, and do big breakthroughs. So maybe one quick question here, being mindful of time. Um, there's a couple of questions related to public awareness. I've noticed the general public is, I'll say, completely unaware of the scale of harm that exists in, in health systems. And we know this is not just a US problem, but what can be done to help improve public awareness to help try to marshal some support to, from, from, from everybody to realize we, we really need to be working on this? Oh, this is such a big topic and an interesting one. I'm gonna suggest that the media have actually been very helpful. Mm -hmm. The problem we have is the response they get mm -hmm. when they bring the issue to the fore. We understand they respond to readership. Okay, right, it's a business as well. And when we see articles, the New York Times article, the one on uh, December 15th um, about faith-based hospitals and how faith-based are they, how mission-driven are they? If those reporters don't get feedback from all of us, if they're, New York Times, you couldn't, you know, wonderful publication gets a lot of circulation. If we don't respond and say, wonderful article, so glad you mentioned it. This is why so many nurses are leaving. This is why we're losing our best doctors. If you don't respond, the, the media sources say, this isn't an issue of interest to the public. It's been a real problem. We don't know what is wrong. When the media do something, that article, if that didn't wake you up, but if we don't respond and we've had documentaries, you've seen them, right? We see the documentaries. If we don't react and say the public does care, this does matter to us, we're not feeding the kitty. You know, we're not saying to the media outlets, please keep covering this. It really matters to us. If I could piggyback, I think Karen makes a strong point and I appreciate this coming up. Um, if I could piggyback with another example that struck me this week, uh, uh, you know, I'm from the journalist, the New York Times, uh, there's a piece that starts with a deadly epidural, um, heartbreaking piece right. about harm occurring in, uh, in, uh, in a, for example, in New York hospitals that serve disproportionately poor uh, members of the community. And, you know, one can't not be struck by the preventability of the harm. And, and one of the things that struck me though, was that the source for some of these different incidents was a database kept by reporters nationally, pieced together from all of the different state level agencies and other local that do report, right? And can you imagine if um, all of that were better coordinated and um, that the reporters were able to not just say, you know, medical leaders they spoke to said this was the practice and that kind of stuff, but there was a National Patient Safety Board informed, uh, you know, uh, sort of standard, you know, that had analyzed this and said this is still happening. It should not be happening. The public needs to know this. Boards need to know it and know that it's entirely preventable. And here are the standards, et cetera. So. Um, I think it's a good example, again, of where and the right kind of NPSB can have a public knowledge, positive impact as well, working uh, with those who, you know, the fourth sector, um, you know, that Karen's brought forward. Yeah. Thank you, Ken. Um, thank you, Karen. We are unfortunately out of time. So I want to thank everybody for uh, attending here today. I want to thank uh, Ken Siegel, Karen Wilk-Feinstein. Um, Ken, Dr. Feinstein, thank you both for, for being here. Um, the session has been recorded. Uh, we will send out an email 
with a link to that recording, uh, that email and the page that the recording will live on. We'll have more information about the NPSB. I will link to some of these New York Times articles that were mentioned here today. And uh, we, we hope this helps encourage and inspire uh, more action, both locally, nationally, and, and even internationally. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.